Welcome to The Good Life with Dr. Danny, a program of Danny Yamashiro Ministries and Formation Institute. Divisions of Jesus Christ is calling you. To contact Dr. Danny and learn more about the ministry, visit drdanny.live. Now let's join Dr. Danny and experience the good life today. Danny Yamashiro here. Welcome to The Good Life, encouraging you with inspirational stories to share with family and friends through perspectives of hope in Jesus Christ. How does a farm boy from Wisconsin studying the science of soils and plants become a leading Old Testament scholar? What did the Vietnam War, hippies, and the Jesus movement mean to his focus about his future pursuits related to Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek? This is the story of Dr. Richard Averbeck, whose teaching on the Old Testament law has shaped leaders worldwide. We pause to remind you the reason we have the Good Life program is to share how the love of Jesus Christ makes a difference in the lives of people. I'm talking about the love of Jesus so strong, dear friend, that he died on the cross for your sins and mine. He was buried and rose again on the third day, offering God's hope, hope that touched Richard Averbeck, hope that reaches to you too. Will you turn from your way to God's way? That's called repentance. Open your heart to Christ. That's our prayer. And if you already know the Lord, well, this this is a time to be encouraged, uplifted, and enriched. Dr. Richard Averbeck is the Emeritus Professor of Old Testament and Semitic Languages at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He earned his bachelor's degree at Calvary Bible College, his Master of Divinity degree and Master of Arts degree at Grace Theological Seminary, and his Ph.D., his Doctor of Philosophy degree at Annenberg Research Institute, Dropsy College. He is married to Melinda. Dr. Averbeck, welcome to our show. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to this. I mentioned Wisconsin a bit, but say more. Where did you grow up? It's in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, north of Milwaukee, about an hour. Uh, south of Green Bay, about an hour. <laughs> it's uh, It's right on the eastern... Uh, side of Wisconsin, uh, and it was a a family dairy farm, and it's still in the family since 1848. 1848. What was it like for you growing up there? Oh, I I really appreciate my background growing up there. I loved working with my father uh, on the farm. I just really enjoyed that. I have lots of fond memories. It was a lot of work. You that's what you do as a dairy farmer. You just work all day. <laughs> and 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 in in the middle of it you have good times and you have bad times and so on, but but uh it is uh dairy farming, it's you gotta be there all the time to milk the cows and so on and so forth. And then of course there's field work and in uh, field seasons and so on and so forth. So you mentioned eighteen forty eight. Has has it stayed in the family, have relatives or siblings how has it been passed on all these years? This sixth generation, gener- generation by generation, one of the sons takes over the farm. And uh, that's how it works. And uh, that's been through six, I don't know, maybe heading on to seven generations now. And uh, it's in the, 1848 was the year Wisconsin became a state. 
So the year of statehood, that's <laughs> easy for anyone to remember the, the, the start there of the farm. Now, you were studying agronomy early on. Yes. Yeah, I went to University of Wisconsin, River Falls. It was commonly called MUU, <laughs> Agricultural mm-hmm. School. And uh, that uh, was what I studied, soil and plant relations, kind of as a farm kid. And uh, there is where I came to first hear in an understanding way the gospel that I know of. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's where I received Jesus, my Savior. Yes, say, say more about how you became a Christian, especially during that time. What what were the surrounding circumstances around your conversion? Well, uh, I was a freshman there, and uh, I went to a banquet to get the free meal, and it was an evangelistic banquet, and I didn't even know what evangelism was. So uh, I went, and uh, a George Mensek, a, a comrade of Al Capone in Chicago, had become uh, saved, and he preached the gospel there. And... Uh, I just uh, was drawn to whatever. I didn't. I don't think I really understood it that night, but I think I I realized that this is what I've been looking for in my life, and uh, for a long time. And uh, so I uh, I prayed with someone, but I don't think I came to know the Lord. It's just that the Lord was drawing me. And then later, someone came to my room a month or two later, and I'd been reading the Bible for a couple hours every day since that one night and he dropped the line that helped me understand what I'd been reading. And after he left, I, I bowed and prayed to Jesus for salvation. And that was, that was the moment you go back to. Yes. Yeah. And in, in, in that time, uh, I began studying the Bible and I had a group of the people that, that, uh, led me to the Lord had a Bible study for me. And uh, I just listened as they talked about the Bible and began to learn a little bit. And uh, <laughs> and I heard that the Old Testament was, was written in Hebrew and the New Testament was written in Greek. So I assumed Christians learned Greek and Hebrew. So I found a place to talk Greek and Hebrew, Calvary Bible College, and that's where I went. So it turned the course for you at that point in yeah. your life. Yeah, completely. Yeah, I just lost interest in everything else. I'd like to circle back a bit with your upbringing before your moment of conversion. Who would you say it was influential or most influential in your life during those young years? Oh, undoubtedly my father. I really had a good relationship with my father, and I loved being with him on the farm. Um, I also was a wrestler, and I had a had good relationship with my wrestling coach, and so on, and uh, so uh, there, 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 there's some influential people, but I'd say it's undoubtedly my father, Earl Averbeck. Earl Averbeck. What did your father say when he heard the news that you were, you were leaving the study of agronomy and you were going to study Greek and Hebrew? He was really shocked by the whole thing, by me talking about coming to know the Lord, and so on. And he thought I should just continue on in the farming thing, uh, agronomy. And he really wanted me to farm with him. But my brother took over the farm uh, after this. And uh, and he really, my dad really wanted me to farm with him. But uh, he began to, to appreciate it after some time, 
and was quite uh, supportive of me serving the Lord. When did you meet Melinda? In Calvary Bible College. In fact, uh, the first evening that I arrived uh, on the campus, when I transferred there, the first person I saw was Melinda. And I I was very attracted to her. And so uh, eventually it turned out that we we dated. And then after I graduated from Calvary, we, we got married. And those years... Early on in your your marriage, were you already planning to enter academia to pursue further studies in Hebrew and Semitic languages? Uh, yes, actually, that was part of our dating. Even uh, she was really interested in in helping someone in the ministry, and uh, <laughs> she she got more than she asked for in terms of someone who needed help, and uh, so. We joke about this, and we're, we're thankful. As you've gone into the study of Hebrew and Semitic languages, were there things that surprised you, Richard, along the way in that process? Yes. Uh, I, I, I transferred from, I went after I graduated from Calvary, I went to Grace Theological Seminary as a student. And uh, I... Um, I just continued. I already knew Greek and Hebrew, so I did advanced courses. I did Akkadian in my uh, MDiv program and so on and so forth. And one of the things that might be of interest here is, and I mentioned this even in the book, uh, uh, that uh, there was one place I can see it in my face right now in the hallway in the basement of the seminary building where just I was walking down the hallway and it just occurred to me. It occurred to me that maybe the Lord wants me to help the church with the Old Testament. Hmm. And that is really the the call that I found out later. That's really where my passion was. And I see that as the moment where it first occurred to me. As you were studying the languages, you know, some people will struggle with learning another language, especially a, a, a language like Hebrew. How how did you feel as you know in terms of your being able to embrace and move forward with and, and take in the understanding of the language and the nuances of the language? Well, uh, that's why I transferred to Calvary Bible College from the University of Wisconsin um, was to study Greek and Hebrew. I mean that was the the whole point of it, and so I started taking Greek beginning heap and beginning Hebrew uh, right from the beginning uh, together. And uh, and so I kept, uh, I keep on studying them and I kept on studying them and on through and and then I went to seminary and was already up to speed on that and developed that further and so on. Well, God certainly gave you that, that aptitude to serve the body of Christ at large, which you have, done and continue to do. You're listening to Dr. Richard Averbeck. He's the author of the book, The Old Testament Law for the Life of the Church, reading the Torah in the life of Christ. When we come back, we'll get into the book, hear from him, his perspectives, his years of 
research and writing and teaching. Dr. Richard Averbeck is the Emeritus Professor of Old Testament and Semitic Languages at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He taught for four years at Dallas Theological Seminary, teaching in both the Old Testament and Pastoral Ministries departments. More from Dr. Richard Averbeck when we come back. Find out more at tiu.edu. Stay with us. Wandering the road of desperate life Famously beneath the barren sky Leave it to me I'll lead you on So afraid that you will not be found It won't be long before your sun goes down Just leave it to me James 3.13 says... Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. The Good Life with Dr. Danny is brought to you by generous sponsors. Thank you to Coach Dino Babers and Mrs. Susan Babers, Mr. Edmund Jung and Mrs. May Jung, Mr. Rodney Arias Sr., A1A Electrician, Cedar Assembly of God, and the Thursday Men's Breakfast, Boston. If you, your business, or your church would like to support The Good Life with Dr. Danny, please visit drdanny.live. Join our partnership team. That's drdanny.live. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Life with Dr. Danny, a program of Danny Yamashiro Ministries and Formation Institute. Divisions of Jesus Christ is calling you. Now let's join Dr. Danny and experience The Good Life Dr. Richard E. Averbeck is the author of the Old Testament Law for the Life of the Church, reading the Torah in the Life of Christ. He taught at Grace Theological Seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary, and as Emeritus Professor of Old Testament and Semitic Languages at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Find out more about Dr. Richard Averbeck. Get the book. It's available for you there at Amazon.com or any uh, distribution outlet. And find out more about him at tiu.edu. Dr. Averbeck, in, in what ways are the Old Testament law one of the major biblical and theological problems for the church? Well, um, we know that this was true as an issue from early, very early in the church in the book of Acts. The first Jerusalem council in Acts 15 is about the whole issue of Gentiles who are coming to the Lord, which was a surprise to the Jewish church. Uh, Gentiles coming to Christ, now what do we do with them? And there was a group with even Pharisee background that had come to know Jesus, and they believed that the Gentiles who came to, to believe in Jesus uh, needed to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses and essentially become Jews. Um, at that council, it was decided that no, that was not how they came to the Lord. They were not keepers of the law or anything when the Holy Spirit was poured out on them, beginning in Acts chapter 10. And so uh, the decision of Peter and James, the brother of the Lord, the 
half-brother of the Lord, who was the head of the church in, in Jerusalem, uh, decided, no, that's not what this is about. It's about being a follower of Jesus, and uh, they did not need to become Jews in order to be followers of Jesus. So uh, how did that as a, as a seed become uh, an ongoing discussion in terms of the church life today? Well, some have said, some major scholars have said, that the relationship of the Old Testament law to the church and the believer is one of the greatest problems in the history of the church. And I don't know if that's true, but it is, it, it's not the greatest problem, but it is one of the big problems through the centuries that the church, from the, from the beginning in the book of Acts. Um, and there's been lots of disputes over it. Lots of church splits over it. There's been lots of things that have gone on through the ages. And uh, the result is that it's still a big and confusing issue uh, today. Well, it was confusing to Peter from the start. And a real struggle took place between Peter and Paul in Galatians 2. Uh, Paul rebuked Peter for separating from Gentiles when Jews came. Uh, and so th there was a dispute even amongst the apostles as to how to deal with this. But they worked it out and came to the conclusion that uh, the law is good and it is always has been good and always will be good. The issue is how does it come into the church? That's the real issue. What have you, what have you discovered or observed through your years of study, how would you explain how that has unfolded? Well, it, it unfolded starting with, uh, I've done a lot of book work on the, on the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. And I wrote, oh, in a certain uh, set, uh, set uh, New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis, edited by Willem van Gemmeren. I wrote, you know, 250 pages in there on the sacrificial system. One of the things that we were supposed to do was follow through with the things that we were working on into the New Testament. And what I found, and this was kind of the start of it for me, what I found was that the New Testament was using these things from Leviticus to teach the Christian life. And I uh, was accustomed, accustomed to being taught that, the, that in terms of the law, you divide it between moral, civil, and ceremonial parts of the law, and then parts that apply are the moral law. Well, the problem is that when you talk about ceremonial, that's the ritual, sacrificial law, and so on. And uh, that was being used for teaching the Christian life in the New Testament, so how could it not apply? So uh, I, had, I, had real, I, I had to really face that issue because of the work that I was doing and decided that this division between moral, civil, and ceremonial is not the way to understand the law in the first place, but it's also not the way to think about how the law comes through into the New Testament. You, you write about in the book that, that, that the church often comes to the, the quote-unquote whole discussion backward, not paying attention yeah. to how New Testament writers and Jesus himself were steeped in the Old Testament law. Would you say more? 
Yes, I, I think that's a very important issue, and I do talk about it quite a bit in the book. We need to understand that the apostles were Jewish. They had that background. And the Bible of the early church was the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't even written yet. And uh, they were in the process of writing it based on the Old Testament. And so what happens is if you uh, let go uh, of the importance of the Old Testament, you're letting go of the scripture that the apostles used and from which they preached the gospel and taught the church. So we're talking, uh, discipleship was taking place in the early church using the Old Testament. That was the, that was the scriptures. That's what they were, that was what they were referring to. Yes, and the apostles were preaching it, and out of the apostolic teachings we get the New Testament. 2 Timothy 3, 15 to 17, all scripture is inspired by God. Is is there a, a bit of a wrinkle here? In terms of people's understanding today, when they read it, there's a face, sort of a face value reading of it that needs to be viewed again, would you say? What is that referring to? Well, in the context, uh, Paul is writing to Timothy, of course. And he's saying that since Timothy was an infant, he had been taught the scriptures uh, and those are the scriptures that he was talking about. He said all scripture is God breathed and profitable for instruction, rebuking, correction in righteousness, growth into uh, usefulness in Christ. And uh, uh, the, fa- the fact of the matter is that when Timothy was an infant, the New Testament wasn't even written yet. He's, he's writing this having in mind primarily the scriptures of the Old Testament. And that then gets extended to the New Testament in various ways in the New Testament. The point that I want to make from that is that Second Timothy was the last book that Paul wrote. And even at the very end of his ministry, uh, he was still hanging on to the Old Testament as profitable. For all scripture is profitable for uh rebuking, correcting, training people in righteousness. And uh, that, I think, is often misunderstood, and people aren't thinking about what Paul is talking about, and the result is they just kind of let go of certain parts of Scripture and see them as unimportant. When Paul was arguing very directly there for the profitability of all Scripture. If we want to disciple as Jesus did, or as the apostles did, the the light needs to shine back a, a lot more on the Old Testament. Here, Doctor Richard Averback helping us walk through or guide us through. What do you mean, Richard, by saying the law is good? I know you mentioned that just a few moments ago. The law is good, but you also say the law is good. The law is weak, mm-hmm. and the law is a unified whole. What do you mean? Well, the law is good. Paul comes right out and says that in Romans 7, when he says the law is holy, the law is good, uh, the law is even spiritual, and it's present tense. It it is this. And uh, he's not saying it was that in the Old Testament or anything like that. It is this for us, as he's writing the book of Romans, to believers in Rome, uh, largely Gentile believers. So, This is important, I think, 
to understand that the law is good and was good in Paul's mind uh, as he, uh, he continued to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's important. Now, the other point is the law is weak. And he says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 2. It talks about, you know, the, the, the law is weak because it can't do what only the Holy Spirit can do. The, the Old Testament law, God's law, not even God's law can change a human heart. It's a great standard for living. And Jesus said that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbors yourself. These are the two great commandments. And those two great commandments come from the law. And the whole law hangs on those two great commandments. So the law is good. It's holy. It's spiritual. But the law can't change a human heart. It's a standard. And it, the standard can't change anybody because we're, built, we're a flesh, we're fallen in sin. But the Holy Spirit is strong in this way because he can reach right into the depths of our person and change our heart, turn it in a different direction. I can't do that. The law can't do that. Nobody can do that except God through the work of his Holy Spirit. That's what he develops in Romans 8. So Romans 7 clarifies that the law is good, holy, spiritual, but Romans 8 tells us, but there's certain things the law was never designed to do. No law can change a human heart, not even God's law. And that requires the work of the Holy Spirit to change the human heart so that we see the law for what it's meaning to intend in our lives. And it, the Holy Spirit can bring it to bear. The Holy Spirit is on both ends of this. He's the one who inspired the writing of the law. And he's the one who's within us bringing it to bear so that we live according to God's holiness loving God and loving people and all the different dynamics of that. Then the other thing is the unity of the law. That's the third thing. First, the goodness of the law, then the weakness of the law, as opposed to the power of the spirit to change me and you. But then there's the unity of the law. And that comes back to what we talked about earlier in that it's, it does not work actually to divide the law between moral, civil, and ceremonial and decide what is moral and therefore apply that and say that the other two don't apply. Part of the reason for that is the New Testament uses pieces from all three of those uh, units, moral, civil, and ceremonial. Uh, it uses them to apply to the Christian life, directly quoting it for the Christian life. So this is uh, has been a problem all along. People have been confused by this discussion. My attempt to clarify the whole thing is that you have to hang on tightly all the time to the law is good. You have to hang on tightly. The law is also weak, but the spirit is powerful. You have to hang on to that just as tightly and not ever let go of either of them. Keep them both in play in all that we do in our understanding of scripture and of living the Christian life. And not only that, but moral, civil, and ceremonial law are unified in that they all come through into the New Testament for teaching the Christian life. For example, um, temple. The temple is part of the ceremonial part of the Old Testament, the rituals and so on and so forth. Well, in Ephesians 2, Paul, for, just in one passage, there's many of these, but in Ephesians 2, the Paul, teach, Paul teaches that the church 
is the temple of the Holy Spirit and uses all this temple terminology in order to get us to think about ourselves as the temple and a place of sacrifice and giving of ourselves to God. Peter does the same thing in 1 Peter 2. Both Paul and Peter teach this. Talks about us being priests who offer sacrifices in the temple. At the same time, we're parts of the temple. All of this, they're using this background material to teach the Christian life. And it comes from what is commonly called the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law is often thought to have been fulfilled by Jesus, and it was. He was our sacrifice. He provided for us everything we need for life and godliness and salvation eternally. But the fact of the matter is, if we're going to be like Christ, we need to be sacrificial too. We need to give ourselves. We need to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so it applies to Christ, but then it extends to us who are little Christ, Christians. And uh, so the new, that's the way the, uh, the apostles in the New Testament taught the Old Testament law for the church. You're listening to Dr. Richard Averbeck. He is the author of the book, The Old Testament Law for the Life of the Church, reading the Torah in the life of Christ. Find out more at tiu.edu. The book is available at amazon.com and other book distribution outlets available for you there. We're going to go further. Dr. Averbeck is a wellspring of richness in this field. His areas of expertise include the Old Testament, especially the Pentateuch. When we come back from our break, more from Dr. Averbeck. For example, how does the Old Testament law apply to the life of the church? Well, he took us there, but we'll go a little bit further. How did the law work in the original Old Testament context? That and more from Dr. Richard Averbeck when we come back. Stay with us. Find out more at tiu.edu. We'll be back in just a moment. Wandering the road of desperate life Famously beneath the barren sky Leave it to me I lead you home On behalf of Danny Yamashiro Ministries, thank you from the bottom of our hearts for listening to The Good Life with Dr. Danny, weekdays at 6 p.m. on WEZE and visiting drdanny.live for more resources. My dear friend, it is because of listeners and donors like you that we are able to spread the message of Jesus' love and bring hope to people like you, your family, and friends. Proverbs 11.25 says, He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Will you prayerfully consider donating to Danny Yamashiro Ministries so that we may continue to broadcast the gospel so believers will be built up and non-believers may form a relationship with Jesus Christ? Visit drdanny.live to make a financial contribution today. That's drdanny.live. And thank you again for supporting The Good Life with Dr. Danny. May God richly bless you with The Good Life. Listening to The Good Life with Dr. Danny. 
a program of Danny Yamashiro Ministries and Formation Institute. Divisions of Jesus Christ is calling you. Now let's join Dr. Danny and experience the good life today. Dr. Richard Averbeck's areas of expertise include Old Testament, especially the Pentateuch, ancient Near Eastern history and languages, Old Testament criticism, Hebrew, and biblical counseling. He's been a visiting lecturer at the Lutheran School of Theology in Copenhagen and Aarhus, Denmark. He joins us today from Wisconsin. You can find out more about him at tiu.edu. The book, his book, The Old Testament Law for the Life of the Church, is available at Amazon.com and book distributors everywhere. Again, Dr. Richard Averbeck, you talked about the law, the law is good, the law is weak, law is unified whole. You mentioned moral, civil, ceremonial law, the, the, take, taking them together. If someone is listening and just saying, wait a minute, what part of the Old Testament is Dr. Averbeck talking about when he speaks of moral, civil, slash judicial, and ceremonial law? What books of the Bible are those found? Well, the, uh, in the book of Exodus and in Leviticus and a little bit in Numbers and also in Deuteronomy, we have different sections of law because that law is given over a 40-year period of time while they're at, at, uh, uh, at Sinai and going through the wilderness before they enter the promised land. So this is, um, there's different sections of law. Some sections are more focused on the basic principles of law that God set forth, the 10 words, the 10 commandments, okay? And that's often the starting point for talking about the moral law. But there's moral law that runs through the law too when people use it. Now, actually, I don't like these this terminology because I don't agree that it helps us, but moral is true. God is very concerned about morality in the law, and that starts with the 10 commandments. Then there is the civil, or as you mentioned, also judicial law, which is about, in ancient Israel, how do you handle these things that happen? If somebody beats somebody up, or if an ox gores somebody, or all these different kinds of possibilities, how do you handle that? What do you do in terms of bringing recompense or, or punishment or whatever? And that's normally called the, the civil law. And then there's the ceremonial law. Some people call it that, the, the rituals and the procedures and the, the tabernacle and the burnt offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and, and the day of atonement and all of that is often referred to as the ceremonial law. And uh, so, so these are thought to be ways to divide up the law. Now, the, the law does not divide itself up that way. But uh, people have imposed that on uh, the law in order to try to figure out, okay, what applies and what doesn't apply uh, to the church. And uh, one of the problems is that that doesn't really help us because the New Testament uses all three segments. If you will divide it up, moral, civil, ceremony, all three parts of it are used anyway in the New Testament in various places. Not every part of the law is cited in the New Testament. But from those three different categories, there are citations from all three of them. Could you take us further, 
and give us some examples of that. For example, in First uh, Corinthians nine, Paul cites this civil law: uh, "You shall not muzzle an ox while it's go- muzzle an ox while it's treading, while it's thrashing, walking through wheat or grains, in order to knock the grain off, so that they could then winnow, get the chaff out, and they would have the grain." And uh, he says in First Corinthians nine, in a context where he's talking about the people who minister to you in the spiritual things of the Lord, you need to provide for them. And uh, uh, he's, he, he uses this law about not muzzling an ox while it's threshing in order to support that. Uh, and if you think about it, what's, what's he doing? Well, what, what happens if an ox is threshing and you muzzle it? Well, it's going to be straining at that muzzle, struggling to eat some of the grain. It's walking in food. And uh, so the result is you're just torturing the ox. Well, don't torture your ministers is basically what he's saying in First Corinthians 9, like you would torture an ox if you did that. That's an example of, say, a civil law that is being uh, applied by the Apostle Paul to the church in the New Testament. I also mentioned uh, earlier about Ephesians 2, and we are a the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so the the temple concepts and the holiness needed in a temple and the sacrifices offered, and all of these are things that are used in the New Testament to teach the Christian life. Um, Romans 12, on, present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your proper worship of service. Well, it's using all this background material that the Jewish writers of the New Testament would have been fully familiar with, as well as the readers of the Old Testament as the Bible of the earliest church. They're familiar with this, and what they're, what he's using it is a way to help us to understand that we need to offer ourselves up as sacrifices to the Lord. So he's using this, and there's lots of examples of this. We're a temple of the Holy Spirit in the sense uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 6 about we we need to therefore purify ourselves and so on, because one of the things you must do in a temple is be pure. 1 Peter 1, Peter talks about uh, purify your hearts for a sincere love of the brethren. We're using purification terminology for the physical purification procedures in the Old Testament, washings with water and so on. And he's using that concept, those terminology for purify your hearts so that you can love well. People do not love well if they have impure hearts. And so he's using this, this, and it's, it's, it's organic to how they're thinking and preaching and teaching and writing for the life of the church. When he used, when he used the example of the muzzling the ox, while it's threshing, the people who heard that they got the message. Yeah, they they knew exactly it, what he was talking about. Don't torture the minister. Hmm. It was a way of illustrating something very important in the church. How did Jesus fulfill for us as Christians this part of the the Old Testament law, I'm talking about the tabernacle, temple, the ritual holiness, you know, the priestly regulations that you 
write, a, write about Dr. Averbeck. When we come back, w- would you be able to speak to us about that and how he sure. fulfilled that through his death and resurrection? We don't always get a chance to have a Old Testament scholar like Dr. Averbeck to explain it to us. I'm just looking forward to receiving it in, in a quote-unquote in living color from him. When we come back from our break, we'll talk about that. He'll share about that. Maybe even a little bit about how how did Jesus teach the law to his disciples? Don't we want to focus on Christ? Well, we'll do that when we come back. Find out more about Dr. Richard Averbeck at TIU.edu. He's the author of the book, The Old Testament Law for the Life of the Church, Reading the Torah in the Life of Christ. Stay with us. We'll be back with more. Wandering the road of desperate life Namelessly beneath the barren sky Leave it to me I lead you on This is Danny Yamashiro. Don Pick Benson wrote, When I was growing up, my dad was a farmer, not a Christian. He had little interest in faith, having been told by his father that the Bible was a fairy tale. But then a local pastor took an interest in my dad, asking if he could help plow the fields on the weekend. That one act of service spoke louder than words ever could to my dad. By his actions, the pastor made my dad feel loved, and that did more than any preaching could have. He didn't need convincing about the theological correctness of the Bible. He needed to feel God's love for him. This pastor met that need in a practical way, and that's evangelism. For more inspiration on evangelism, go to drdanny.live. You're listening to The Good Life with Dr. Danny, a program of Danny Yamashiro Ministries and Formation Institute. Divisions of Jesus Christ is calling you. Now let's join Dr. Danny and experience the good life today. Dr. Richard Averbeck preached and taught in China, across Germany and West Africa. He's a member of the Evangelical Theological Society, the Institute for Biblical Research, the American Oriental Society, and the Society of Biblical Literature. He's been the director of the Spiritual Formation Forum. He joins us from Wisconsin today. Find out more about him at tiu.edu. Dr. Averbeck, how did Jesus fulfill for us as Christians this part of the Old Testament law, the, the tabernacle, temple, ritual, holiness, priestly regulations, all that, through his death? And resurrection. Perhaps we should just turn back as an example to Romans 7 and 8 again, because in Romans 8, it begins by saying, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the foundation. If you're in Christ Jesus, there's no law, nothing that can condemn you. 
God has already accepted you as his child. And God is not a fickle God. He accepts you and it's permanent. There is no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Then verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was. That's where I get the concept of the weakness of the law. Weak as it was to the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, as a sin offering, Jesus set us free completely from any condemnation. And this is background for this is in Leviticus chapters 4 and 5, where it gives the regulations. It's important for the Day of Atonement, uh, the sin offering. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's an offering that deals with sin in such a way that it's no longer in the way between us and our God. That's what the sin offering was provided for by God so that we could therefore have this relationship with him in spite of the fact that we're fallen and sinful and fleshly, simply by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. So that's one example where the, the sin offering is used to describe what Jesus did for us eternally. In Isaiah 53, the suffering servant song, uh, yeah, in verse 10, the suffering servant is referred to as a guilt offering. That's another kind of offering in the Old Testament that deals with guilt of trespassing a God's, upon God's territory and so on. And so this is all another type of offering in Leviticus chapter 5 and 6. Um, there, there, there's lots of different ways in which uh, Jesus did this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Jesus is referred to as our Passover offering. And at Passover, you need to get rid of all the, the leaven before Passover starts, anything that would be leavening of bread, because you only eat unleavened bread. You need to get rid of all the leaven from the household. And what he's saying there in this situation where this one is sinning and they're not uh, dealing with him in discipline, he's, he's saying, well, you're letting the leaven be there when the Passover has already been sacrificed. So this is all part of background, and it's, it's all in the Old Testament. And it gets, there's very interesting reflections on all of this in the, in the rabbinic literature of the Mishnah and the Talmud and Amara and all of these different Jewish sources to help us see how did they conceive of and understand these things. more we can understand of these uh, Levitical procedures, ceremonial law, the more we see and understand that, uh, the more we will understand what Jesus has done for us. So that it, it, it happens in, it comes out in all sorts of different flavors in the New Testament, telling us about all the various dimensions of what Jesus has done for us. Multifaceted. Dr. Averick, yes. thank you for explaining that. How did Jesus teach the law to his disciples? Well, he did it in various ways, uh, and but maybe the Sermon on the Mount is the place to start, where he's gone through the Beatitudes, and it comes down then to uh, verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, after the Beatitudes. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill it. In other words, to fill it up, to show how you live it, 
Okay, and he shows what that means in the following section. And he says it's uh, he says uh, in verse twenty four, I say to you, unless the righteousness surpasses your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, there were a lot of people who thought they were keeping the law, uh, uh, who were amongst the officials of the Jews. But he's saying, I'm talking about something that goes a lot deeper than what they're suggesting. So he goes on and talks about the law says you shall not murder. Well, we know this from the Ten Commandments, right? It says, but I tell you, you shall not hate. Even your enemy, he talks about that later on in the chapter. So uh, he, he takes, where would murder come from? Well, it comes from hate. And so you have to deal with what's underlying it in order to understand the very intent. And that's actually found in the Old Testament law itself, too. So there's a lot of different ways in which he taught it. But I think perhaps the most important thing is the two great commandments in Matthew 22, when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Well, he refused to give one. He gave two. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, might, and strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, these regulations come directly from the law itself. Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19. And uh, these are regulations. And he says, on these two commandments depends the whole law. So what Jesus does is he says that if you keep in mind these two things, love God and love your neighbor, you're going to be doing the kind of things that God would want you to do anyway, according to the law. The law contains all sorts of regulations for Israel in its ancient world, in its ancient day, and it, it helps us understand what they would have considered to be good and holy and loving God and loving your neighbor. And it's got that cultural background to it that may be different from our culture. Some things, if the law was given today, would be stated differently because what works in our culture is not the same thing that worked in their culture in their ancient world. What, what happens then is the New Testament, Jesus comes along, brings it right to the church in terms of the two great commandments as the basic foundation for, all the, for the whole law in the Old Testament in the first place. Now, this is an important issue here because a lot of people think of the law as just a bunch of rules and has nothing to do with real godliness or anything like that in the church today. There's a lot of misunderstanding of the law. But the fact of the matter is that Jesus says the whole law is about loving God and loving your neighbor. If we don't see it as being that way, we've got it wrong. Jesus says so. Uh, the whole law is about that. It was all about that from the start, and it's still all about that. Dr. Averbeck, as we begin to wind up our show today, in view of what you've just said and what you've just described, will you say a prayer, love your neighbor, love God, love your neighbor? Would you say a prayer for our listeners today and what, whatever they might be going through in the challenges of their lives. Would you do that, please? Sure. I'll be glad to do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the midst of all that goes on in life, things can get really confusing, but you're with us. You're there. Your Holy Spirit is working in us. We're there before you in Christ. And that's always true. Nothing can separate us from your love. 
Father, help us also to live the kind of love that you've shown to us in giving us your son as our savior. Help us to be sacrificial, to be the kind of people who show forth your love in the midst of this very dark world. Yes, the world is dark. But one of the great things about this is that in the midst of a great deep darkness, just a little light makes all the difference. And Father, I pray that you would help us to love you and to love one another in such a way that we would see you in the way we deal with one another and that others would see that and would know that we are followers of Jesus. We are walking in his steps, imperfectly, of course, but also with real determination to please you. So, Father, we commit ourselves to this call to love you and to love our neighbors. They go together. They're not in contradiction. They belong to your truth for all of life. I pray this for each one here today, everyone listening. May our lives be characterized by the two great commandments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Dr. Averbeck, thank you so much for being with us today. I And, and for that prayer, the, the tenderness, the, the, the richness of our conversation and what you have shared throughout your life, your study, your work. You write in your appendix about Messianic Jews and your interaction with them. As we close today, a word of what you see the Spirit doing among the Messianic Jews and among the Jewish people in Christ? I, I really believe that something special is happening. Uh, you get a lot of resistance, of course. Uh, the Jewish line is that you can't become a Christian and remain a Jew. Well, that's that's not true. In fact, becoming a Christian makes you more of a Jew because he's, he's the Messiah. And so uh, one of the things that's so important is to realize that in the midst of this world, God still has a plan for the Jewish people. And he wants them to come enter into his plan through coming to Jesus. And this Messianic mission, I'm very involved in this. And uh, I'm so thankful for the opportunity to be involved in it. I've taught, actually, uh, in my classes in various places, I've taught uh, quite a number of, of Jewish uh, believers, believers, uh, what we call Messianic Jewish believers. And uh, it's a real blessing to see this. And the ministry of that is expanding. And it seems that what's happening is there's a, a thing coming, a real work of God through these Messianic Jewish evangelistic ministries that can really advance the kingdom of God here in this day. And I'm very thankful for that and for the opportunity to be involved in that. Amen. Dr. Richard Averbeck. Grounding words from Dr. Richard Averbeck, tiu.edu. My friend, God's timing is perfect. There's no better time than right now to share the love of Jesus with someone near you. And if you haven't done so, look, this may be that perfect moment for you to open your heart to Christ. Go to drdanny.live for next steps. Find resources. Reach family and friends. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, major platforms. 
2 Timothy 3.15, all scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. It's always a blessing to be with you. Thank you to Dr. Richard Averbeck, TIU.edu. Until next time, along with my producer and creative director, Brian Torres, social media director, Luke Yamashiro, and guest coordinator, Jan Yi. I'm Danny Yamashiro. Remember, the Lord is with you as you share the love of Jesus with someone today. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast of The Good Life with Dr. Danny. We hope that today's program has been a blessing for you and that you may find hope in hearing how God's Word affects people from all walks of life. The Good Life with Dr. Danny is a listener-supported program, and we'd like for you to prayerfully consider becoming a sponsor or donor. To contact Dr. Danny and learn more about the ministry, visit drdanny.live. That's drdanny.live. Be sure to tune in weekdays at 6 p.m. to hear The Good Life with Dr. Danny. Until next time, may God richly bless you with The Good Life.